Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Welcome to Week to Week, the political roundtable from the Commonwealth Club of California, presented this month in partnership with our friends at the Capital Club. Thank you, everyone, for joining us for a special election conversation about the people, propositions, and policies on the ballot this fall. I'm John Zipper, your host for the Week to Week Political Roundtable and the Commonwealth Club's Vice President of Media and Editorial. On today's program, we are going to have a special focus on the 12 statewide propositions before voters, and we will do what we can to help you be informed about them as you look at your ballot. And as we always do on week to week, we will also talk about some of the some of the other hot button issues on the political scene. And before you even ask, yes, it's been difficult to choose what we will discuss when just the past couple of weeks we've had a Trump tax dump, we've had rapid COVID spread, we've had a presidential COVID infection, we've had a debate debacle, a Kimberly Guilfoyle scandal, failed stimulus talks in DC, and now we have another story that will rock this nation. It's the proliferation of super pigs, nine million feral pigs that are running amok across the country. They are being, and I'm not making this up, they are being called a feral swine bomb. And they are, I mean, there are understandable fears that they will use the vote by mail system to undermine the election. Now, they're even invading Canada, building what's called pigloos as they move north. And they're accomplishing an invasion of our northern neighbor that the United States itself was incapable of pulling off successfully in the War of 1812. So we don't even have time to get into that in this program. We'll do a separate one where we get into super pigs and murder hornets, maybe. But for today's program, if you're watching us live on Facebook or YouTube, use the chat functions on either one of those to send in questions, and I'll try to work them into our conversation uh, with our panelists today. And we do have a lot to discuss, so let's get started by meeting our panelists. They are all political experts and week-to-week veterans, so I'm pleased to welcome them back to our virtual stage. Let's start with Dr. Lanhee Chen. He is the David and Diane Steffi Fellow in American Public Policy Studies at Hoover Institution. He's also the Director of Domestic Policy Studies for the Public Policy Program at Stanford University, and he's on Twitter at Lanhee Chen. Lanhee, good to see you again. Thank you, John. Dr. Larry Gersten is a political analyst for NBC Bay Area. He's also a Professor Emeritus of Political Science at San Jose State University and the author of a number of books in California politics, as well as two children's books. He's on Twitter at L. Gersten. Larry, good to see you. Great to be with you. And Carla Marinucci is the senior writer for the Political California Playbook. You can follow her and all that she follows on Twitter at CMarinucci. Carla, great to see you back. Good to be here. Thanks. Now, first, I wanted to get into the propositions because there are a lot of them. Uh, Some of them might be kind of minor. Others are really interesting. And there's a lot of controversy about some of them. So... Uh, let's get into them. If you're like me and you consider yourself reasonably politically informed, it's likely you're surprised by some of the propositions when you open your ballot. Now, I literally received mine yesterday, and I will be filling, uh, filling it out later today um, and sending it in. I guess you can put it in a Dropbox, you can put it in the mail, or if you're from my home state of Wisconsin, I guess you can just leave it in a ditch somewhere and someone finds it. Um, but let's talk about each proposition. And if you want to get a refresher for any of these when you later sit down with your ballots, you can check out some guides to the propositions at Cal's ma- excuse me, calmatters.org or Politico. Politico uh, California Playbook has a, has a great uh, uh, refresher on them. So the first ballot measure is Proposition 14. And this issues $5.5 billion in funds, excuse me, in bonds for the state's Stem Cell Research Institute. Lanhee, didn't we do this a while ago? We did. We actually, uh, we, we actually did several years ago. The original uh, amount that was approved is winding down. So this uh, proposition uh, has, been, uh, has been proposed to, to borrow essentially more money to continue financing uh, of the institute. Um, look, I think broadly speaking, Californians uh, like the idea of, uh, of biomedical research. They like the idea of stem cell research. Some of the trickier issues, some of the trickier issues around embryonic research, et cetera, have been mitigated and obviated by science, quite frankly, since then. Um, there is some question about whether we want to be borrowing more money whether in fact California needs to do this because a lot of federal money comes to California already. The opposition, you know, the the California Republican Party, as an example, has come out opposed to Prop 14. I was part of those deliberations in part. I think the big set of conversations was really around this question of borrowing more money. Uh, And and so I think fiscal hawks, to the extent that any still exist, 
will take issue with Prop 14, but otherwise, uh, you know, I think stem cell research is broadly quite popular in our state. Carla, um, uh, the states and, and certain institutions really got involved in, in funding or, or setting up or protecting stem cell research back uh, when it was, I guess, federal stem cell uh, funding was, was banned, I believe, under the Bush administration. I, right. That's not the case anymore, right? I mean, is there a need for states to be doing this? I mean, Look, I mean, I think particularly when you're talking about the COVID uh, pandemic, some of the drugs being talked about uh, are the results of stem cell research. Or, and, and I think uh, you're looking at uh, an issue that, that is front and center to a lot of people right now. It, this has been, this proposition has been weighted $8.5 million spent in favor of this one, hardly any money spent against it. So uh, at this point, uh, this appears to be kind of an issue that is absolutely in front of the voters, and it, it looks weighted in, in to be uh, going for passage. But uh, the, the the stem cell area right now, top of mind with the pandemic. Larry, um, this as as we mentioned, I mean, this is the kind of the second go around on this. Is this something that every few years we're going to be getting bonds for stem cell research? Well, when they run out of money, they're going to come back for more. Uh, the question is, I think in some people's eyes, what are they getting for the money that's been spent? Uh, some people have been critical of this, uh, of the Institute for spending the money in a in top-heavy kind of way. And uh, I don't know, you know, when, when something like this is so low in terms of all the other issues, sometimes it sneaks through, but sometimes people say, I don't know much about it. And experience suggests that when people don't know much about it, they vote no. So uh, given the, 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 the lack of, uh, look, it, it, it's, a, it's a prisoner in a sense that so many other ballot propositions are, are, are crowding this one out. Uh, and so for that reason, I'm not at all sure it's going to pass. Um, it may well, but I, I don't see a lot of movement one way or the other, which, which makes me cautious. Okay. John, can I just add one thing? I think, I think Larry raises a great point there, which is, uh, if you look at the public polling on these initiatives in general, not just 14, if there is not an overwhelming majority defined as, let's say, 65 percent or greater who are going to be voting yes, it, it's very dicey that that initiative actually passes. To, to Larry's point, the status quo is, why, why am I in favor of this? Why am I doing this? Unless it is something quite compelling uh, people tend to vote no. And I think that's a dynamic to watch for as you see polling come out over the next couple of weeks leading into the election. Even if you see an initiative ahead, let's say 55, 45, that initiative probably fails on election day. I mean, I, I tend to have a reaction on a number of these and, and I'm not trying to be funny where literally I read them and sometimes I think, why are we voting on this? Yeah. You know, sh surely Sacramento can do this. Surely we don't, you know, it seems very uh, special interest -ish. Well, let's get into these more then because I'm sure we'll come across a couple of those. Um, now, Proposition 15, a very uncontroversial topic, right? It's taxes. <laughs> uh, this would require commercial and industrial properties to be taxed based on market value. I'm going to stick with you, Lange. This goes, this is a partial changing of Proposition 13, isn't it? This is like it is. It's, it's uh, something called split roll, which would essentially... Uh, it, it would it would erode some of the Proposition 13 protections around uh, around limiting property tax increases. So the history here is in 1978, California voters passed Prop 13. It's sort of a tenet of uh, taxation in California that limits the increase of uh, of taxation on property to no more, I think, than two percent per year, unless the property is sold, in which case it's reassessed and and the tax basis is reset. Uh, this would essentially erode the protect. I mean, I'm giving you my editorialized version of what it would do. I'm, I'm sure others will have different views, but I think what it would do would erode that protection, which has been uh, overwhelmingly passed and reaffirmed by voters over and over again, but would essentially erode that protection with respect to commercial properties and does, in my mind, uh, begin to, to eat away at some of these Proposition 13 protections that I think California taxpayers have spoken again and again in favor of. So it'll be interesting to see what happens because... Uh, obviously, the play here is trying to figure out a way to make the proposition seem favorable by saying, look, we'll raise more money, we'll be able to do it in a way that doesn't hurt people. Uh, but, but obviously, there are consequences to reassessments or limiting the, uh, limiting the protections for commercial property. So I think that's the big concern. And this is something that I know a lot of 
um, more conservative interests in the state, to the extent that there are any, have, have been quite aggressively against. Larry, what do you think the pro prospects are for this proposition now? This is a good one. Uh, it's good because, uh, on the one hand, um, people love Prop 13. It's just baked in. I mean, you know, it's like, you know, motherhood, apple pie, and Prop 13. I'm not even sure it's that order. Uh, and, uh, and, and for that reason, uh, there's such a preponderance to support it. Uh, homeowners are happy with it uh, and, uh, because they feel safe. Uh, and so I think some of them may be thinking, well, if they're changing this now for commercial purposes, are they coming after us next? On the other hand, we're talking about revenue increases in a state that desperately needs revenue, particularly because of, of the billions of dollars that have been left out uh, due to uh, the, the recession brought on by COVID-19. That's hurt the state. That's hurt local governments. Uh, this would produce anywhere between eight and $12.5 billion a year. So the question is, are people feeling the need to get that money, especially for schools, and jeopardize their future, perhaps, or do they say, stick with the status quo? I can't give you a clue on this one. I think it's going to be fascinating to see what happens. Carla? And John, I mean, John, this has been the big political battle, I think, on the, on the ballot. Uh, on one side, you had the teachers' unions, you have big labor groups, you have the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative, and you have many of the big city mayors, including London Breed and Eric Garcetti, uh, for this, saying this is the time to revise um, uh, the assessment on commercial properties like Disneyland, like the Bank of America building, which uh, you know of which Trump has an interest in, that there that those haven't been reassessed since 1978. On the other hand, the California Business Roundtable will point out that if those big landlords, those major businesses start getting um, tax increases in the millions of dollars, they're going to pass those tax increases onto small business people. So this is a, this is a down and dirty fight. And uh, you know, $50 million has been spent for it. But as Lonnie pointed out, the polls show right now about 51% of the voters for this, that's a, that's a very small margin right now. Uh, if the argument is, do you want to raise taxes in a pandemic, um, trying to get that, that larger story out there about how it would, um, you know, some of the smaller properties would be protected, but that it's a, this is, this is a, the drama, I think, on the ballot this year. Okay, well, Proposition 16 takes another hot button issue, and that's affirmative action. Larry, give us some history on this. This is like a a quarter century uh, a rebound from uh, uh, legislation in, in 96, is that correct? 96, it was Proposition 209. Uh, it basically uh, it declared that we would not practice the concept of affirmative action in California. Uh, it was a trendsetter of sorts uh, at the time, and uh, the state went for it. Now, bear in mind that the demography in 2000 and 1996 is so different than the demography now. Uh, we're, we're, we're so much more diverse. The question is, how does it play for these various minorities? We know that uh, when, when affirmative action uh, was banned, so to speak, that some groups were able to gain admission into uh, uh, the universities and, and state colleges, state universities, because they no longer were limited to any particular number or percentage. Uh, Asian Americans benefited great uh, from this. Uh, uh, other groups did not. Uh, other groups that might have been uh, admitted uh, before with affirmative action were no longer admitted to the extent that they were earlier. Uh, and it's interesting, I think, that uh, uh, that's where the biggest uh, opposition uh, comes in on this uh, on this thing, um, because they've done so well, Asian Americans, in, in getting into, uh, into the UC system, um, thanks to getting rid of what, what they view is an arbitrary set of standards. Um, Again, this is, these are so hard to predict uh, how, they will, how, they will, how they will go. Because we know when, when a strong opposition emerges with any proposition, even if it tends to be a small group, it somehow is magnified. And it gives people reason to think twice. Well, I think it was a good idea, but maybe it isn't. So, um, I, I, and, and I've seen two polls, and I'm sure uh, Lonnie and, uh, and Carla have seen them too, uh, that, that show it already being defeated. Yeah. already being defeated by about 10, 15 points. So uh, the proponents have a long way to go, even though I think most people would have thought ahead of time 
that it's a no-brainer. Go figure. There you have it. Well, Lonnie, uh, uh, I guess j just toss it to you. I mean, what 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 do you make of its prospects? And and uh, is this the kind of thing we're going to keep seeing? Say it fails. Yeah. Is this the kind of thing we'll keep seeing kind of brought back and brought back? Yeah, I, yeah, I, I do think we will continue to see it. Look, um, what has struck me, I think Larry is absolutely right. There, there, is a, there is a very organized constituency in opposition to this. I haven't seen a lot of financial investment in the pro side. It's not clear to me that there's a business interest or a, a strong interest willing to kind of come in in favor, in which case I, I do think it fails. Um, look, I think broadly speaking, the way you see this depends on how you frame the argument. And, and, and so in my view, if the, if the question is, does the state want to reinstate racial preferences, that becomes a lot less appealing uh, in a lot of ways to people than, than framing it in terms of you know, potentially increasing opportunity. I do think one interesting statistic, I actually looked at this data a few years ago and, and, and have a piece coming on this shortly. As a percentage of overall high school graduates in California, the percentage of Hispanics in the UC systems actually increased since the UC system got rid of preferences in 1996. Uh, the population of black students has remained roughly equivalent and the proportion of Asian American students has, has increased. Um, but it's interesting, right? Because uh, you would think of it in the context of kind of everything we've been seeing especially with the racial reckoning that's happened around the country, you would think this is the perfect time and perfect environment for something like this to pass. But I don't think it will, A, because of the organized opposition, and B, because I do think when the debate is cast in terms of reinstating racial preferences that have the potential to divide us, it becomes less popular. And, and I'm correct. This, this is just affirmative action from the state, state public uh, agencies. Public, state, you know. public colleges and universities and public hiring. Yes, that's correct. Yeah. Okay, Carla. They just basically split right down um, uh, the, the line with uh, leading Democrats, including Senator Feinstein, Kamala Harris, um, as well as UC California Board of Regents, um, LA County Board of Education. Those kind of big groups of four. Many Republicans are against it. Um, as, as Lonnie pointed out, this one is, is very chancy. Even though California is only one of eight states that don't allow affirmative action in hiring or awarding state contracts or accepting students. But the fact and the fact is that the George Floyd killing has brought this front and center. Uh, the proponents say that this will increase opportunity, not just for students of color, but for women as well. Uh, but at the same time, um, they're having a hard time making the case. Uh, uh, and I think this one uh, is, is a challenge for, for those who have spent $17 million on the pro side so far. Okay. We appear to have lost uh, Dr. Gersten here for a moment, but I'm sure he'll be reconnecting soon. Um, there, uh, looks like, Larry, you're back. Welcome. Oh, was I the only one gone? <laughs> <laughs> Life in the time of, of Zoom. Um, I think we've probably got a couple here that we can go through fairly quickly. I mean, Proposition 17 involves uh, giving the right to vote to people, uh, felonies who are on, felons who are on parole. Speak more clearly, I guess. Um, what what are the pros and cons of this one, Carla? Why don't we start with you? I mean, this is the this is one supported by the ACLU, the League of Women Voters. The idea that um, uh, you know, the, the California voters have already given individuals who committed felonies the right to vote, but only after their parole is completed. And so, you know, the reformers say denying them the right to uh, vote is punitive. It, it, it uh, affects Blacks and Latinos um, overwhelmingly. And so what this measure would do would basically restore uh, voting rights to about 40,000 who have been released uh, from prison, but are, who are still on parole. And um, I think that right, you're getting, you're, once again, a split, I think a partisan split on this one. Uh, Senator Jim Nielsen being one of the ones who are saying uh, no, uh, no on this, that uh, the, 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 these uh, parolees or these uh, uh, folks released from jail uh, should not have the right to vote, should not, should not regain the right to vote. So I think that that's uh, uh, it's pretty cut and dried on this one. Uh, right now, uh, about a million dollars has been spent for it and no money has been spent against it. So that may be an indication of where it might go. Lonnie, I mean, 40,000 people out of a state with 
yeah. what 40 something million people doesn't sound like a lot and even with those votes restored those voting rights what percentage of them i mean do we even know how, how many votes likely votes we're actually talking about here is this something we i mean look us? yeah the, the the numbers aren't big i think i think it ends up being a question of principle you know which is if you if you think uh that folks have done their time does that time extend to their time on parole or not that that's really the question if you believe it does then you know you're going to not you're going to be against the notion of giving them the opportunity to vote while they're completing their parole uh, and if you if you think look parole is not time uh, incarceration then uh, then you're going to vote the other way this this really does fall I think as Carla noted this is going to going to go pretty closely with one's views on criminal justice issues more broadly Larry your thoughts yeah I agree with Lonnie it, it, it's values here uh, principles uh, yeah uh, look I think you're going to see a lot of conservatives against this on principle. And don't be surprised if you see a lot of Central Valley moderates go against this as well. Uh, I don't think this is a slam dunk necessarily, like a lot of things. You know, people read it, well, wait a second. Have they really done their time? They're on parole because we're not sure. Uh, so um, I'm not so sure this is going to be a slam dunk. I think, I think there's, there's, a, there's a legitimate argument that's going to be much uh, more prevalent than just among traditional law and order types I th I, uh, in the Republican Party. I think it's going to overlap into, into uh, uh, independents and, and a lot of moderate Democrats uh, who feel, in a lot of ways, pushed around by the liberals. Uh, people forget the Democratic Party is hardly one a monolithic uh, body in this state. Uh, so I think, I think we have to watch for that. Okay, well, what about the very next proposition, which is Proposition 18? This involves allowing 17-year-olds who will be 18 years old by the time of the general election that it would allow them to vote in the primary and, I guess, uh, special elections beforehand. Um, Larry, I mean, what's the breakdown of this? And, and again, young people tend not to vote anyway. What uh, right. do you get out of it? You're talking about both of them. Uh, <laughs> I, I think this has a good shot of slipping through because the because really? the time of of of, of the vote uh, would the time that they you know could vote for the general election it'd have to be 18. Now there's there's a proposition on the ballot in San Francisco that allows uh, 16 and 17 year olds to vote in municipal questions. You probably know about this, John. Uh, and and that one I think has a lot more meat to it in terms of whether you want to allow kids to do that. But this one, is, in some ways, is, is in California, nothing's a no-brainer. But I think this gets as close to being a no-brainer as, as, as it can be. Um, really not a lot of controversy there from, from my perspective. You agree, Lonnie? I mean, yes. I think it's, look, um, this is one of those where you sort of scratch your head and think, we're, we're really voting on this one this year. We, we mentioned that earlier. I mean, look, I think um, there's, a, there, there's a strong argument to be made that if uh, voters going to be eligible in the fall election, they ought to be eligible potentially in the election a few months before. I think the challenge is, I mean, in the raw politics of this, what is introducing a bunch of 17-year-olds to the electorate going to mean for the primary elections, which are top two in this state? They are not partisan primaries. What is that going to mean to the ability, for example, of Republicans to be more competitive, given that young people tend to disproportionately vote Democrat? So there are those political dynamics at play, uh, but certainly, you know, there's also a question about how many people we're talking about here, right? This is the, the same question as the parolees, which is how big of a universe and how much will it actually impact the elections. In close races on the margins, there could be an impact, but broadly speaking, I think the impact is relatively muted. Carla? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I agree. I think, uh, look, Alex Padilla is for this one, the Secretary of State. I think Democrats say younger voters would be, tend to be more Democratic voters. And uh, I think that's why it's being pushed. Um, as as uh, Larry said, not many of them, but more likely to lean Democratic. That's, I think that's why it's a favorite of uh, Democratic uh, 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 you know, officials right now. Absolutely. Sure. Well, then... Quickly, I guess, on Proposition 19, this involves some changes in real estate tax assessment transfers and inheritance rules. Lonnie, as far as I can tell, this would hike taxes on inherited homes in order to give a tax break on Californians 55 year old or older when they buy a new home. What's the thinking here? Yeah, this is a, this is a complex menagerie of changes to Prop 13. 
that really was an effort to try and pair something that would be perceived as enticing to conservatives with something that would be enticing for others. Uh, I'll say this is the one proposition that the Republican Party of California was unable to arrive at a recommendation on because there were, there were people sort of on both sides of this. And the basic idea is you would allow folks who are older, over the age of 55, to transfer the basis in their home that's been accumulated over many years under Prop 13 to any county in California. Right now, they can only transfer it to 10 counties in California, including some of the bigger ones, Alameda, LA, Santa Clara, et cetera. But, but the idea is you can take now that money and transfer it, the basis you've accumulated in your home and transfer it to another home, even a more expensive one. And at the same time, it would essentially prohibit the tax, uh, favorable tax treatment from going to those who use it to pass on homes that are not primary residences. In other words, if I've got a secondary home or a home that I'm going to pass on to my kids and they're going to use it on Airbnb or VRBO to make money, they should not have the benefit of that tax advantage. And so the idea was that tax increase coupled with the portability that I mentioned earlier the idea was this alliance could create enough support to get it across the finish line. Um, look, the, the proposition's being heavily supported by the realtors. They believe this is going to free up housing stock and obviously help them to turn over more homes because people are not going to be hanging onto these houses for longer. It, it's a really tough one. It's confusing. And for that reason, I think people just say, forget it. I don't, this just, why are we making these changes? Forget it. I, I, I don't know what the polling is like, but if I had to guess, this thing does not pass. But John, I can tell you how this one is played in my household because, uh, you know, I think it's popular with boomers uh, or 55 and over. That means you can, if I've owned my house for 30 years, I can take that same low tax rate anywhere in California. However, my millennial kids have said, hey, you boomers have already gotten enough <laughs> benefits here. That's why we can't afford any homes. Um, I think this, this is really interesting how this has been portrayed on the tube. The ads uh, stress people who have been hurt by wildfires, who, who need the tax break to, to relocate someplace, or the disabled. Um, that's how uh, it's being sold uh, in, in the ad campaigns. So I think it's going to be interesting to watch. I also think the end of that uh, loophole, that Hollywood loophole, there's been a number of investigative stories about rich Hollywood families passing on to their kids, and they end up Airbnb being uh, the homes. I think that's uh, uh, maybe a benefit, but you're right. It's a very complicated uh, initiative. And for that reason, uh, Chancy, maybe. Larry, what are your thoughts? Is it too complicated for folks? Yeah, yeah, it is. It's too complicated, it's too confusing. I had to read it about 10 times, get it translated into four different languages. I mean, it was just, <laughs> you know, it was just awful. Uh, and I mean, you know, if, 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 if people who are in the business have a hard time with it, what's it going to be like? And remember the rule of thumb, if it's complicated, it's confusing, it's no. It's that easy. And, and, you know, if I were pushing this initiative, I would have done it entirely differently. I would have said, look, this is the idea of, of, of uh, taking your equity, your base, and moving it to another house, you know, uh, is done already in whatever it is, 12 or 14 counties. All we're trying to do is equalize things for people. That's how I would have pushed this. Uh, uh, you know, because if it's already there, why don't we make it there for everybody? Now, of course, it's not exactly all of that, but it's a good deal of it. But, but for whatever reason, the proponents uh, took a complicated initiative and, tired and decided to give complicated, complicated arguments, and uh, you're going to find a, a complicated no at the end. Okay, well, Carla, Proposition 20, uh, this has involves kind of redressing some aspects of Proposition uh, 47 and I believe 57, uh, where certain misdemeanors were, or excuse me, felonies were made misdemeanors. Um, this would make some misdemeanors felonies again and some other changes. Um, I mean, I've, I can't count how many times I have been in a Walgreens or a grocery store and seen someone walk in, grab stuff and just walk out. And the people working there are just like, we can't do anything. And if the right. police show up, they can't and won't do anything. And if they do do something, the worst that happens is the person gets a fine, which they, they never pay. Right. Um, and yeah. so you, you hear that echo through, and I've heard it from police, I've heard it from store owners, I've heard it from other people. Do you think this could, you know, capture that kind of, of anger and, and become law, or do you think it's... Yeah, and I think, I think um, this is one case where a lot of Republicans have worked very hard on this one uh, with regard to the 
pro side. Uh, I just heard Devin Nunes yesterday. He's been campaigning relentlessly for this one as a law and order issue that is a lot of law enforcement unions, uh, California Police Chiefs Association and others are arguing that Prop 47 and Prop 57, uh, which of course downgraded a lot of crimes, uh, you know, which have been, uh, some, some folks have said uh, the result has been uh, more car break-ins, et cetera, and more home break-ins, um, that this rolls back uh, some of those uh, changes and expands a list of crimes um, and, and gets tough again on, um, on supervision of parolees in other areas. So this is being portrayed by many Republicans as a law and order um, proposition. And I think, uh, I mean, this, this, this is one that, uh, again, uh, $6.3 million has been spent against, but this, could, this may resonate uh, with some folks out there, whether you're talking about um, you know, home break-ins, car break-ins, uh, that, that hits home to a lot of people. I'm not sure where the polls are at on it though. Larry, what are your thoughts? You know, only one out of three statewide ballot propositions ever becomes law. And some of these on the ballot are perfectly uh, good reasons as to why. Uh, you said earlier, some of these things should be done by the legislature. And uh, I don't know about any of you, but when I go around, I'm in the business, as, as I think a lot of us are, trying to explain these things to people and say, well, what does this mean? Tell me what it's about. And, and by the time I get through about the third paragraph, they're sleeping. I mean, you know, this is, this is the kind of thing that leaves people totally flummoxed and, and asking, John, the same thing you just said early on. Why, doesn't, why isn't he, aren't these things done by the legislature? Um, it, they, may be, they may make perfectly good sense. We all see those commercials, you know, there's something wrong here. But I'm not sure it's going to pass the smell test in terms of people understanding it well enough to vote. Even if, even if it does make sense in terms of correcting some of the wrongs. Okay, Lonnie, what do you think? I don't have a whole lot to add to that. I mean, I think this you're going to see this one very similarly through the lens of the of the one we talked about earlier in terms of voting rights for parolees. Um, you know, it, it does become a criminal justice question how you see that broad set of issues and your orientation is going to drive how you vote on this on this particular one, but. Certainly, you know, every, everyone in California, particularly those who live in the Bay Area, are, are familiar with some of the challenges uh, that we've seen with, with rising petty theft and crime. Uh, and, and to the extent that this proposition taps into that, I think it, it could be successful. Okay. I don't know if you could hear that. Someone's ringing my doorbell. Um, proposition 21. Uh, now, this is another one of those zombie uh, things that just keeps coming back. This regards rent control in the state. Um, and according to uh, Carla's uh, friends at Politico, um, you know, basically this is a proposition that was uh, pushed by many of the same people in 2018. In 2019, the legislature failed. Um, Carla, why doesn't the zombie die? This, uh, yeah, this is, I think, the question here that a lot of people are going to be asking is like, why, why are we at this again? Um, I, you know, a similar initiative failed in 2018. And as we know, I mean, the, the legislature and, and Governor Newsom have passed a, uh, a deal that uh, basically curtails rent increases, but um, the AIDS Healthcare Foundation is almost entirely um, funding, uh, that Michael Weinstein is almost entirely funding this one uh, on the uh, argument that, that what Newsom and the legislature did did not go far enough. Uh, this, is, this would allow those local governments to... Uh, uh, really impose a much broader rent control. Um, and I, I mean, the, basically uh, um, goes back to the uh, 1994 Costa Hawkins Act. So, uh, you know, at this point with the housing crisis front and center, um, perhaps this is going to get some traction, but it has not passed the voters muster before. And yet here we are two years later going at it again. Larry, I'm going to ask you to go. I'm going to go let in a very insistent person. I'm going to come right back. So just pretend I'm here. <laughs> What's your thoughts? If this passes, I think it'll pass because we have a changing electorate. The electorate in 2018 is not the same electorate as 2020. You've got a lot more renters coming out in 2020 than you had in 2018. Um, you've got a lot more younger people coming out in 2020 than you had in 2018. Uh, the demography is such that this, this year is much different for those reasons. Um, I think it's an uphill battle, 
because as you said, uh, Carla, we've been there, done that. But given a different electorate and given the anger that people have over this issue, I think it's got a shot. I think it's got a shot uh, just because of those changes. Lonnie, your thoughts? Yeah, the composition of the electorate matters a lot. And I, and I agree with Larry that I think this electorate's going to be different than the one we saw in 18. Uh, look, the, we know what the arguments are for and against rent control. Uh, it's, a, it's a pretty uh, heavily debated issue in municipalities as well as statewide here in California. Uh, but, you know, we'll, we'll see. It entirely depends on who shows up on Election Day and, and before uh, via the, the mail-in vote. Okay, well, let's move on to one that is very contentious and has a lot of money that's been spent on it. This is Proposition 22, and this is kind of a, a follow-on to AB5, which was a bill that required a lot of country companies, for-profit and non-profit, to reclassify contractors as employees. And this has led to a lot of paperwork. Some contractors have lost contracts. Some uh, expense has been involved for these organizations, these companies. Um, Larry... This is kind of called the, the Uber Lyft proposition. It's heavily backed by them. Um, is this the best way for them to get redressed for what they disagree with in the legislation, or would the legislature be the appropriate place to deal with something like this? Well, actually, John, they lost in the legislature. That's why they've come here. That's why they're doing This is why people who lose in the legislature go to the proposition process. Okay, we lost there. We're going to try it here. Um, it's a fascinating proposition uh, because there's so much at stake, not only for the, the driving the rideshare companies, but also for the drivers and more than that, organized labor. You're talking about 100,000 people. Organized labor says to themselves, wow, what an opportunity we have here to organize these people. The, 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 or, the drivers uh, say that, uh, the labor says, I should say, the drivers make after expenses $6 an hour. The, 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 the rideshare companies say they make between $25 and $27 an hour. What do you do with that? Well, I just averaged them, okay? So you average it out, and they're making $16.5 an hour. Simple math. That's just barely above minimum wage. So the question is, the question is, are people going to make that kind of a, a connection? And, and, and I, I think we're also thinking about their self-interest here. How many people use these things and don't want to see their, their uh, prices go up versus how many people feel that these drivers need a better break in terms of not only salary, but benefits and whatnot. It's a good one. It's going it, it's to have the most amount of money, I believe, of all the propositions this time around. And um, it, it, it'll be fascinating to see how it turns out. Lonnie, I mean, can these companies exist if they need to pay you know, salaries and benefits for all their contractors now who would then become employees? Yeah. Well, well, they, they've argued that they won't be able to exist, and I think you've heard uh, th that argument made by certainly Uber and Lyft, both of which were on the precipice of halting uh, services in California because of the requirements put in place by AB5. Uh, look, however well-intentioned, I do think AB5 is a problem fundamentally for the business models of, uh, of companies like Lyft and DoorDash and Uber and et cetera that rely on flexible labor laws to... Uh, both to provide opportunity to drivers, but also to make their platforms uh, financially successful as well. And, um, you know, Prop 22 is interesting because, yes, it does reclassify certain app-based drivers out of the AB5 schematic, but it also uh, calls for some increased uh, rights for drivers as well, right? Putting in place additional requirements that the companies provide insurance, uh, both accidental insurance as well as auto insurance, additional uh, benefits if a certain number of hours are worked. Uh, so there's an effort here to try to, 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 to get at that middle ground. But uh, in my mind, the thing that uh, AB5, the reason why AB5 was so misguided in many ways was because it inhibited the ability of flexible arrangements that have benefited so many Californians. And I think if you look at the, the overwhelming number of drivers and others who I talk to who value the opportunity to, to hop on and get a little bit of extra income when they can, um, the fact that AB5 threatens that, I think, I think is a real challenge. So um, look, I'm on, I'm on record in favor of 22. I think it's a very important thing to do. Uh, we'll see what happens. There's a lot of money being spent, obviously, on both sides of this. So hopefully um, the voters will be able to cut through and get to the issues at hand. 
Uh, we mentioned the, the millions and millions that have been spent on this. Um, are they getting their money's worth? Uh, 190 million, um, Uber, Lyft, DoorDash. Uh, that, that's what they've spent uh, versus 14 million for the other side. And those are labor interests, as you said, and it, and it is gonna be interesting. As Lonnie said, you know, I've talked to a number of Uber drivers who've said, no, I don't wanna be an employee. I, I want that flexibility. On the other hand, you got a lot, a lot of the labor unions are saying, look, these workers deserve the right to, uh, you know, a health insurance stipend, uh, uh, some protection from the job injuries, uh, a guaranteed minimum wage, et cetera, particularly in this, again, COVID era. So um, I think whether they've gotten their money's worth, this is, this is sort of the, the 800 pound gorilla on the, uh, on the ballot in terms of spending. And it's going to be very consequential and watched all over the country how this one uh, turns out. And for any of you, do we know anything on the polling about this one? I haven't seen anything. I, I haven't seen the late one now. No, then people will definitely be watching that one. The next proposition is a smaller one, and it is literally one I wrote in my notes. Why are state voters being forced to decide this? This is Proposition 23 that requires a physician to be on site at dialysis clinics and consent from the state for a clinic to close. Um, I asked that question of why are we doing it, having to vote on this with no intention of throwing shade at either the proponents or opponents of this. It's simply, this seems like a really arcane thing for state voters who of course will know nothing. I certainly know nothing about the proper way to run a dialysis clinic. Um, I, am, I, I will literally say I am unqualified to vote on this. So you guys tell me how I should vote. Lahi? Well, this is a rehash of a fight that, that occurred a few years ago about staffing in dialysis clinics. And, you know, it's a fight between labor and dialysis clinic operators. It's really the best way to think of it. Um, you know, the, the Prop 23 would require a physician to be on site at a dialysis clinic at all times. Uh, you know, in case something happens, and if they're not available to essentially to, to have another sort of similarly qualified person there, the idea obviously is it would boost potentially nursing or, or the presence of nurses, which the nurses unions have been supportive of. Um, and in opposition, dialysis clinics say, look, why do we want to take critical personnel away from hospitals and places where they're actually needed and put them in a dialysis clinics where very rarely do you see problems uh, arise that require this sort of immediate attention. So that that's the fight. Um, you know, I imagine most voters will, this will be a head scratcher for most. And as we've noted earlier, you know, unless it's a strong, compelling reason to be for it, they probably vote against it. Uh, and I think that probably at the end of the day is the right vote, but it's a, it's a, um, you know, it's a head scratcher for sure. Again, so many of these propositions, by the way, and I'm sure Larry and Carla would agree, it's like the same battles over and over and over again. And you try and tweak it a little bit to make it a little bit more appealing. But by so doing, you create additional constituencies that might oppose you. This is just what our initiative process has become in California. I think it's, I think it's broken. And I think we got to figure out some way of fixing it. The, the process, not dialysis clinics, by the way. <laughs> Larry, do you agree? Yeah, I, I mean, it's... Narrow, narrow interest. This is sort of like back to the back to 22, back to several of them. Uh, when they don't get what they want in the legislature, they come back uh, through the initiative process. And it's costly and it's wearing on voters. Uh, believe you me, when you talk about Lahia, uh, the, the initiative process is broken. Frankly, I think it's been broken since it was initiated. Uh, I, I think it's never worked well. And, and, but yet, it doesn't, doesn't matter. Uh, they, they come at people again because it's their, they think it's, they, these interests think it's their only way. Frankly, I think a better way to deal with these things is to go back to the legislature and say, okay, what can we do to make you happy? You know, enough, enough different, you know, pull together enough uh, coalition, if you will, uh, to push things through. Legislatures are very responsive to those kinds of things. So uh, nobody's going to know much about it. And, and the likelihood is, regardless of how any of us feels, uh, it will be defeated simply because this isn't this isn't my fight. That's what people will be saying. I think. Carla, you're nodding. I mean, I, not much to add. I Ten to one spending against this uh, by the clinics, and I agree. This is one of those propositions that makes voters throw up their hands and say, "Why am I doing this?" Um, I mean, I, I agree agree on all of the above with what Lonnie and Larry said on this one. 
Okay, well, we're almost done with the propositions. Just two more to go. One of them might fall in the exact same category. See how quickly we can get through Proposition 24, which deals with changing privacy protections uh, in the state. Um, Lange opponents of the bill include the ACLU and Dolores Huerta, who are not exactly known as tools of big business. Um, is this just another one of these special interests? I mean, it's, it's being pushed by this one person who uh, feels very strongly about it. Yeah. Well, what Prop 24 would do would say California already has a privacy law. It's actually, you know, pretty, pretty stringent in a lot of ways. But the goal of Prop 24 is to sync up California law with a standard known as GDPR, which is universal across the European Union and has been quite, quite frankly a headache for a lot of American companies to comply with. Any American company that does business in Europe or has any presence in Europe has to comply with the European privacy standard. And the goal is to bring the European privacy standard to California. Uh, here again, you know, it's not quite clear to me that, now look, I think every voter likes the idea of data privacy. They want their data to be kept private, but when they really look at it and realize California already has something like this, why are we messing around with this? My, my sense is it's not gonna have a lot of sympathy. And in fact, will create headaches, not only for California businesses, but also for California consumers in a lot of ways too. Larry, do you agree? Voters are conservative with a small C by nature. Why do I need to make something different? What is compelling me to say yes? They're not gonna be compelled to say yes on this kind of issue, as well as five or six of the others that we've talked about. They may be worthy. I'm not suggesting they're not. I'm only suggesting that for most voters to say yes to something, they have to identify with it and really say, I need to see change. I doubt that you're going to see that with this one. And Carla, this is not a big spending uh, proposition. It's probably one a lot of people won't have heard of, except for our viewers, before they see their ballot. Yeah, I think that one of the interesting things is, uh, you know, aside from Alistair McTaggart, who was the uh, driver on what has been California's, uh, uh, one of the strongest privacy laws, consumer privacy laws in the nation here in California. We also have Andrew Yang um, behind this one. But as Larry said, uh, a lot of people are, might just say, why do we need more here? Uh, it, it establishes a state agency that will be enforcing these privacy laws, but I'm not sure that's a big driver for a lot of voters either. So uh, I think that's where this one stands in. It'll be interesting to see how it turns out. Uh, that's, that's, again, almost 10 times the amount of money spent against this one uh, than for it. Oh, okay. So the final statewide proposition, if, if you're still awake, uh, would ban cash bail in the state. Um, this is kind of a follow-up to, uh, I guess, legislation that uh, did this in 2018 in the state, but that, of course, has been tied up in court. Um, Larry, what can you tell us about this proposition and its prospects? Well, the book, the bail industry, of course, has uh, the, the, the most at stake here. And, um, and they've been upset uh, about uh, the way that uh, the legislature and the courts uh, have turned things to a point where bail is no longer really as automatic as it used to be, uh, especially given the discretion that judges now have. So the question is, is there any way for them to return to that kind of uh, 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 system that we had before. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a small sector, uh, but uh, it's been relatively successful in the past in, in, in ensuring that state policies work well when it comes to criminality and protecting us uh, from, from, from those accused. Um, I'm not sure they're going to have a whole lot of success with this uh, in, in whatever they do. I think, I think we, our minds have been made up uh, on this direction already. Uh, Lange, uh, and, and there are, as we mentioned, I mean, the bail industry opposes this, um, but there are also the state NAACP, Human Rights Watch also oppose it. Um, do you think it's doomed to failure? Yeah, I mean, I think this falls into the same category. But but look, I think the, the the transition that California made from a money bail system to a system where bail, uh, where it's determined essentially by an algorithm that looks at the individuals, a complex set of factors, individuals past, et cetera, uh, the, the crime alleged, 
you know, the, the fundamental thing that supporters of money bail argue is that, you know, money bail worked. It compelled criminal defendants to appear at trial. Uh, the failure rate on bail was something below 2% on money bail. So um, that, that's the argument. Uh, you know, whether it's going to be compelling enough to, to get voters across the finish line to affirmatively uh, check yes, you know, that I have questions about. And, and, and so, and now as I understand it, the yes means to restore money bail and the no means to put in place, keep in place the current system. And that's why I think the current system probably wins at the end of the day, because I think the momentum carries people across uh, the finish line to just saying, now, why do we change things uh, as they are? And when you have one of those confusing, yes means this and no means Horrible. that. Yeah, when you're explaining it, it's probably gone down. Carla, your thoughts on the cash yeah, bail? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't have too much to add. I think, I think the, obviously the argument is that the cash bail system uh, has created uh, two systems of justice um, in California, and one which uh, disproportionately affects poor people and people of color, uh, which is why the uh, NAACP's position on this one uh, is, is kind of head-scratching. Uh, but yeah, you're right. I think this is going to confuse the voters, as you said, Lonnie. A yes vote does allow uh, does abolish the cash bail system, and no vote keeps the cash bail system. Uh, that that's going to be uh, an issue, I think, for voters who aren't going to be able to make heads or tails of this one. But that 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 whole drive to eliminate cash bail has been part of a conversation nationally on the issue of. A criminal justice reform, police reform, and uh, just reform of the justice system uh, to 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 provide uh, a more even playing field for people of color. So that's where this one comes down. John, John, can I add one point here? Sure. Um, the head scratcher that Carla refers to has to do with the NAACP uh, endorsing positions that would seem to be antithetical to to their values. Uh, I think it's of note that the head of the California NAACP has a PR firm. That PR firm was given, I believe it was a $1.2 million contract to promote five positions on, I think, five of the state initiatives. Some might consider this a conflict of interest. And that may be why you see that organization, and there are others like it, by the way, who just don't get the notoriety. Uh, taking positions that would seem to be uh, adverse to their own uh, values. Okay. We survived the propositions. Uh, all you have to do now is fill out your form and get it into the uh, election authorities. Let's talk about, in our, our remaining time, let's talk about some other uh, issues on the election scene. Um, tonight, and I believe it's in Utah, the vice presidential candidates, Vice President Mike Pence and Senator Kamala Harris, will be debating. Um, and I, I, Lonnie, I, I think we, I mean, you're a veteran of national campaigns. Yeah. So what, what do you think each candidate needs to accomplish? Well, you know, there, there's the old saying that, um, I forgot who said it, maybe Larry or Carl, I remember that, that, that the vice presidency is not worth a warm bucket of spit. And, um, you know, generally speaking, that's the case. Although this year, uh, given the president's COVID diagnosis, given uh, Joe Biden's relatively more advanced age, the vice presidential debate takes on an, a more important dimension. Um, I think, look, I, I, uh, I was one of the folks preparing Paul Ryan for his debate in 2012 when he was the VP nominee against, um, against Joe Biden. Uh, and, you know, really the, the VP debate is usually an opportunity to continue to go on the attack to uh, make sure the message of the campaign is one that's articulated well and to not screw things up. You know, those are generally the goals. Um, this year, I think it'll be interesting. People will watch Kamala Harris a little bit more carefully because they don't know, you know, in California, we've had exposure to her, but nationally, I think her, her uh, unknowns are still relatively high. A lot of voters say, I don't know much about Kamala Harris. This may be their first introduction to her really on a national stage, even though she did all those primary debates this is a different stage, a different opportunity. So I think for her, the stakes are high to be able to demonstrate competency, to be able to demonstrate what her perspective is. And look, I think she'll get pushed a little bit on areas where she and Biden disagree, particularly health care. She has embraced Medicare for all in the past. She's since uh, rescinded her support of that. She had a, a relatively tortured answer on health care during the primary. We'll see if she's able to recover on that issue. Uh, areas that 
she's divided with with Biden as well. I think you know those will get areas of exploration certainly that the moderator will probe. And and then for Pence, I think he's going to get pressed really hard on on COVID response and the administration's response in light of uh, the president himself contracting COVID and a bunch of people working in the White House contracting COVID. So. Uh, this debate tonight actually is a lot more interesting than any past VP debate, although past VP debates have had great moments. Um, I'll just mention one, which was the Lloyd Benson debate against Dan Quayle when they had the exchange about John F. Kennedy and Benson with the famous line, Senator Quayle, I, I knew Jack Kennedy, you're no Jack Kennedy. That was from a VP debate. So we'll see what happens tonight, but uh, a lot more people are going to be watching with interest. Larry, I, I think um, a lot of folks coming at this debate are kind of, especially from California, again, where, where we know her, are kind of thinking, wow, this is Kamala Harris. She's, she's going to, you know, she's a prosecutor. She's going to be really sharp. Um, but Mike Pence is, has also done a lot of debating in his races for Congress and, and uh, governor and, and for vice president now. Um, what do you, if there's going to be any surprises tonight, what kind, where do you think they would be in a, and and are they likely to be gaffes or are they likely to be someone really scores a policy point? There's a surprise. It'll be because something wasn't done. Um, you're right. This is Kamala Harris's uh, coming out party, so to speak. Uh, uh, you, but you're, there's a reason this is so important. And that is there'll be three to four times the number of people watching tonight as there were any of the, any singular of, of, of the democratic debates. So the exposure opportunities here are massive for her. Now, Pence has, of course, uh, uh, exposure opportunities and has had them for some time. Unfortunately for Vice President Pence, he is the head of the COVID task force. Um, and I absolutely believe that if, whatever else, COVID is the issue, the issue of this election. I think Biden's been very skillful about that. I think Harris will be too. Uh, and Pence has got to find some way to get himself out of a box that he has put himself in uh, or was put in by the president. To, to take your choice. Harris has to be careful, though, because the line he says, there were divisions here uh, among, among the two, uh, 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 Biden and Harris. So Harris is going to have to tap dance on that. Um, you're talking about a, a 10 to 16 point national lead right now. Of all, take a look at all the national polls, respect the national polls. That's pretty hard to shake up. All right, it can be shaken up. The question is, will this debate do it? I don't think so. Carla, your thoughts? I mean, this, this is one of the most consequential uh, vice presidential debates uh, because of the age of the presidential candidates. They're both in their mid-70s. And, you know, Pence has a real challenge. He has to defend the, the last four years. Remember the last time he did this uh, debate with Tim Kaine, he was introducing Mr. Art of the Deal to America as his fresh phrase business guy who could get things done. Tonight, he has to defend the president's record uh, and and. Even over the last 48 hours, the balcony scene, the, the way it was handled, the coming back out of Walter Reed, he's got to defend all that. Even the president pulling out of the COVID stimulus um, uh, negotiations and sending the market tanking and then turning around on Twitter last night among 65 Twitter tweets and, and going in another direction. You know, Pence has been very skillful and be able to, you know, manage the president's misstatements. Uh, and that is going to be his challenge tonight. But yeah, I think Harris, too, she has a very high bar. Uh, the, 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 the goals right now are, are a lot for her. And I think a lot of people may be underestimating Mike Pence going into this. But she has to prosecute the case. She is a prosecutor, has to prosecute that case for Joe Biden. But she's going to get those questions about, um, are you going to pack the courts? Uh, what about states for rights for D.C.? and Puerto Rico. The questions that Biden hasn't answered yet, she's going to be put on the uh, dime to answer those questions. So she better be ready for that, as well as defunding the police, the new, the Green New Deal, etc. cetera. Uh, th those are the areas that Republicans think she's weakest on. It's going to be a really interesting debate. Well, uh, we've only got a few more minutes left. Let's actually go off on one of those, those issues you just mentioned, which is the Supreme Court. Um, of course, right upon the death of Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, President Trump moved quickly to nominate Amy Coney Barrett to the court. Needless to say, this has been controversial on both sides. So um, 
start with you, Carla. Briefly, what do you think of this fight and its possible impact on the control of the Senate? I mean, it's it's fascinating to see, and we I think we have yet to see if any of other senators um, may be affected by COVID. The numbers that may may def- define how this plays out. But what we know is, I mean, the polls show Americans are against really rushing these confirmation hearings, and I think this is another place where the Trump administration's handling of the pandemic comes front and center. When you have some of the senators saying they're going to appear in moon suits to make sure this, this confirmation hearing happens. Uh, that and the fact that, uh, as Trump has tweeted several times and talked about, he believes the courts are going to have sort of a definitive answer on the outcome of the election or could have, uh, that makes this even more dramatic. So uh, considering the fact that it was her event at the White House that turned out to be the super spreader event here, all of this comes together in one of the, I think, the most dramatic um, confirmation hearings ever at this point. If, if this were an episode of West Wing, they'd be telling the writers, no, 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 you're, you're packing it too much. No one will believe all this stuff is happening. Lonnie, uh, is this the political win for the Republicans? Then I, I'm hearing that some Republicans are saying this is worth losing the Senate for because this really ensures conservative uh, hegemony on the court. Yeah, I, I, I don't know that. Uh, I think the argument I've heard is actually the way it helps is in some Senate races reminding people kind of of why they they might support Republican candidates. And and the, the I think for the Trump administration, the hope is the same that some of those we talked about earlier, some of those uncomfortable, undecided voters, the reason that they might end up pulling the lever for Trump is to say, well, look, you know, at, at least he sort of gives uh, us what we would like, which is a which is a more conservative Supreme Court. I mean, it's just tough to see how this all all plays out politically, except to say that I think Democrats need to be a, a little bit cautious here about what they're attacking. In other words, attacking the process is one thing where I think they, they will see some traction. The idea that the new president, whoever it is, should be the one to make the nomination and, and that process. And then attacking Amy Coney Barrett separately, because I think she, um, I, I think she represents uh, a, a lot of very favorable things, quite frankly. I think she's got a, a, a great... Uh, she's clearly qualified. She's got a background for being on the court. You can disagree with her decisions, but um, she is clearly qualified as an appointee in that way. And so there will be a fine line in my mind between attacking her and attacking the process that's been used. And, and you see Democrats trying to pivot to talking about health care, the Obamacare case that will be before the court on November the 10th. You hear them talking about other issues as well, voting rights, et cetera. Um, that's where the Democrats want the conversation to go. That is more fruitful territory than uh, trying to attack Barrett. You know, I've seen some attacking her for her adoptions, which I think is probably not going to be fruitful and not going to get them a lot of points with uh, with swing voters. But you know, I think there are more fruitful avenues that they that they ought to pursue if that's their goal. Larry, what are your thoughts? And are the Democrats powerless on this? And there's an old saying in politics: if you got the power, use it. And nobody knows how to use power in politics better than Mitch McConnell. He's going to get this through. It may not be before the election, simply because of what Carla said, and that is too many uh, wounds uh, from COVID-19, which is ironic in itself, uh, among the Republican senators. But if not before the election, it'll be after the election. Um, you know, Democrats can, can poo-poo this all they want. Uh, it's not fair. Uh, the court's going to be too conservative. I would just remind them that if you were if you were around in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, you had an incredibly liberal Supreme Court, which was probably out of sync with the public to the extent that the conservative Supreme Court is out of, going to be out, out of sync with the public now. Elections have consequences. That's the other saying. And uh, this is the consequence that goes back four years. Three, three times the president's been able to appoint a justice. And, and whatever you want to say about President Trump, and we can say a lot, he has lived up to his promise. I promised you I was going to give you conservative justices. I'm giving them to you. And maybe to Lonnie's point, a few people will go ahead and say, okay, I can't stand the guy, but he gave me my judges. Okay, and that, and that, may, that may be the difference in a couple of uh, close elections. But, but this is done. It's going to happen. And, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's all part of politics. And I'd be shocked if it didn't go through. Okay, well, on that note, 
we're going to move on and, and thank you very much everyone for joining us. One final note, Californians have begun to receive their ballots and have even cast their votes in some cases. So wherever you are, whatever your politics and election favorites that you, that you, you well, want to see win, uh, whatever those are, we urge you to make sure you're registered and to make sure you vote. Thank you to our great panel today, Carla Marinucci, Dr. Larry Gersten, and Dr. Lani Chen. Thank you to our partners at the Silicon Valley Capital Club. And thanks to all of you who are watching us and listening to us online. Stay safe and healthy and have a good week. Bye. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you go to commonwealthclub.org slash donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.